Hi there, and welcome to Vet Club. Um, hopefully, you know, I'll get Topher to add the music in later, but if you're watching this on YouTube, couldn't get the sound stuff working out. I don't have my headset on, the microphone's off to the side. Whatever, it, it is what it is. Um, I am super excited to welcome Dr. Eric Hoffmeister to the show. Um, Eric, welcome, thank you for being here. Thank you, great to be here. Yeah, so, um, Eric, you are a veterinary anesthesiologist, and you also, um, you have a blog and a podcast, um, and so we're doing like a crossover special, uh, like the sitcoms do, where, you know, <laughs> that's how I like to think about it, <laughs> um, and so yours is focused on, I mean, I guess a lot of things, but kind of just like professional development of students is sort of the, the umbrella that I would give that, um, but you beyond being an anesthesiologist and you've been primarily or exclusively in uh, university settings? Yeah, I did my internship yeah. in private practice, but okay. after that, yeah. Yeah, you've been in, in the university setting. So you and I have gotten to know each other primarily through education channels. Like that's really where our paths have crossed. Um, a couple of publications actually that came out not that long ago, so that was exciting. Um, so the, the main things you and I have interacted on, which is what I'm interested in, but we can talk about whatever you want to, um, but is the patient safety and then the education initiatives. But um, maybe start by just telling us like a little bit about yourself and kind of, yeah, what's what's been your path in, in veterinary medicine and anesthesia and, and how you got to where you are and what you're doing now. Yeah, for sure. So I grew up in uh, Western LA, uh, Pacific Palisades, a, a kind of posh little uh, suburb. And uh, I, I went to the public school system uh, in, in the Palisades and most of the kids were bussed in from the inner city. And uh, so it wasn't a particularly safe high school to go to. And um, I was like, I wanna get out of here. And so I applied to Washington state as a junior and got accepted. And so I left. So I'm a high school dropout, never completed high school, never got a GED or anything like that. That's went to awesome. Washington. Yeah, went to Washington. They had a honors vet program where they took, I think it was eight incoming honors freshmen and basically guaranteed them admissions to vet school if you fulfilled other criteria and maintained a certain GPA. Um, yeah, so I did that. It was a two year, two year program and then uh, matriculate to vet school and did vet school at Washington State, um, and then graduated uh, in 2000, and then um, I, I love education. Like, if I could be a professional student, that's what I would do, and so I found out, uh, oh, after you graduate, you can do an internship and keep learning more stuff? That sounds great. Let me do that. And, you didn't uh, read the fine print, did you? <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, you know, I was a single yeah. guy. I had nothing better to do with my time. Might yep, as well exactly. go work 80-hour weeks, um, so I did an internship in private practice in Southern California, and uh, then I, I really wanted to be a surgeon, specifically orthopedic surgery, because they, you fix them and they go home, and That's it's not true. like medicine where they're like, oh my God, they're Lingering back again. forever, yeah. What's wrong with you? Um, and, uh, but surgery residencies are really competitive, and in vet school, I was kind of a slacker. Uh, I, I didn't really pay too much attention in class, or I, I paid attention, but I didn't do very well on exams, so. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I was on like the bottom, the cusp of the bottom quartile for yeah. uh, for class rank. Um, I did really well in clinics, but uh, at Washington, uh, the clinics were not graded. They were all pass fail. So basically, your GPA, your GPA couldn't be benefited by it. Exactly. Yeah. So um, so I was not competitive for surgery residency. Uh, and then after the match, um, there were a couple of anesthesia residencies that were open. And I was like, oh, I can do that for a couple of years and that'll make me a better candidate for a surgery residency. And so um, applied to those and UGA called me up and they were like, hey, you want to come do an anesthesia residency? I was like, yes, please. And so it was originally going to be a two-year residency because once upon a time there were two-year anesthesia residencies. Um, but uh, I was there, I was like, hey, can we make this three-year residency? And uh, I ended up doing a lot of uh, research then. And I was like, this is fantastic. Like being in academia is kind of like being a student for forever. Yep. And um, so I stayed on there. They actually gave me a faculty job like halfway through my residency because they just desperately, you know, needed someone. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I stayed on there until uh, 2016 yeah. um, when I went to Midwestern University, one of the new uh, schools out in Phoenix and uh, was the department chair for surgery there. They, they were just getting things set up. So they were just getting the departments organized. So 
yeah. I kind of went out there and, and worked on trying to build that uh, system um, and then ended up uh, moving to Auburn University, uh, where I am now, and I'm um, just a regular faculty member, anesthesiologist doing um, doing that. And uh, so, so yeah, I, I've tried to do a lot of different things. I have a lot of interest in cross-disciplinary uh, involving like psychology and sociology um, topics with veterinary medicine. Um, mostly because it's like, it's, it's low hanging fruit research wise. I think yeah. that yeah. a lot of cross-disciplinary stuff, it lends itself really well to, to doing easy research projects. Well, because like easy, because like somebody else has kind of done this in one area and you're like, oh, let's replicate that over here. Like somebody's done a lot of the legwork, but let's just see if the same holds true here or if there are differences. Yes. Yeah, those are fun. Yeah, exactly. And also like, you know, I, I think that there may not be, I think it's more true now, but at least once by a time, there weren't a lot of people doing like that, that sort of cross-disciplinary stuff in vet med. And so when I introduced those concepts of veterinary medicine, it's like, Ooh, this is novel. I'm like, I don't know, like psychology has been doing this for 30 years, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, I feel that way with education stuff. It's like, Oh, let's figure this out. It's like, uh, they've known this for like yes. 70 years. Um, <laughs> it took me 10 years of trial and error to get to it, but somebody literally figured this out a long time ago. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, okay. So I have a couple questions about, about this. Um, so do you think like when you went back and you were like, I think I want to do surgery, but you said, okay, I can do anesthesia. That will make me a better surgeon. Was it that you were just like, oh, like actually what gets me excited isn't necessarily orthopedic surgery, but it was just that ability to move on to new things. And you were getting that in your academic position. And so you're like, I don't need to do surgery specifically. Or were you just kind of like distracted long enough that you were like, ah, I'm not going to go back. Like, do you, did you always kind of think I want to go back and do surgery or did you change your mind completely and say that wasn't actually what I thought I wanted? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I have a couple of thoughts on that. One is I think that I could probably be happy doing almost anything because, you know, we have evidence that happiness is like 50% genetics, right? So, and I'm also a white man born to an upper middle-class family, you know, in, in the United States of America, like there's only so unhappy I could yeah. be, you know? Yeah. So um, I, I've thought that, uh, you know, if I hadn't gotten into med school, I could have like gone to do a PhD in biochem or who knows, you know, I, I think, I think people place an excessive amount of import on happiness to their profession and, do, and, and tend to underplay the importance of the people that you work with, mm -hmm. you know, is the work interesting, like that sort of thing. And I see this in the, the pre-vet students all the time who are like, I have to be a vet. It's the only thing I could be. I'm like, no, you could probably be happy doing lots of stuff, guys. Yeah. Um, Yep. Yeah. I, like you want to feel fulfilled and challenged, but it doesn't have to be in this one particular niche. Cause yeah, yeah I think about that too. Like I, you know, I thought I was going to be a vet since I was a kid, but like at five, you don't know. I had no <laughs> idea. Right. So it, it was so much like, okay, Hey, this happened to work out, which is good. But I, I think I have a similar outlook um, and probably, you know, genetically favorable as well. Like I'm generally a happy person and I, I feel the same way. Like whatever I, my backup plan was philosophy actually. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was my minor in undergrad. Um, I, I love it. Uh, so that was, yeah, maybe not as like, I don't know. I'd have less debt, but also a lower salary probably. So who knows? Right. It's tough, um, I'm yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's a trade-off. But yeah, I think about that even now, like if I couldn't be a vet starting tomorrow, something happened and I couldn't be a vet, I'd be like, bummer, but I'd move on, you know, and right. I'd find something else to do. Uh, I do, I worry about that. And I think this is that this is the psychology crossover for which I am not qualified at all to comment on, but I'm going to comment anyway, is that the, um, I do think that some of the issues we have with mental health, particularly depression and suicide is um, one, it's obviously very complicated, but one thing is that when people tie their full identity into being a vet, that's dangerous. That's so dangerous. And uh, I was like, no, I'm a, I'm a whole person. And this is one aspect of me, just one aspect, a cool aspect. Don't get me wrong. I love this stuff, but it's just, it, it's not who I am. My identity is so much more than that. Um, and so, yeah, we, I hear that from, you know, sometimes the younger students, but even people like Later and later in their careers, where like if you ever start a story where like so I was hanging out at work when I wasn't on you know scheduled like that's not that's not good like go away go do something else. Um, it's one thing if you get called in or you're needed there, but like yeah, I had nothing better to do, so I went into work. Nope, 
nope, that's, I mean, that's cool that you like your job, but don't do that. <laughs> and don't feel bad when you want to go home at the end of the day. I yeah. tell students that all the time. Like we should not be making each other feel guilty because we want to be done after working a full day. Um, yeah. Anyhow. And I, I think that maybe that also there's something to be said for, you know, you know, your cycle in life. Like I said, like I was, you know, young single guy as a senior student as an intern, like that's not a whole lot else I wanted to do with my time, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, that there are some people that enjoy, you know, working and putting the time in. Yeah. yeah. And I, I ended up being one of those. Yeah. And I think that it's tough. Uh, I don't know if this is a generational thing, but, you know, on the one hand, I, I say to people like, no, like if it's, if, if it's ready to go, go ahead and leave. Like, you know, Friday afternoon, if we don't have any more cases, it's two o'clock. I tell the students, get out of here, get some sunshine. Enjoy it while you can. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, I'm not doing that you know, like, because I kind of like doing my job and being here and I have like lots of stuff to do. So I, I yeah. worry about, you know, not being a great, like, do as I say, not as I do sort of thing. Yeah. I think that that is, it's, it's, that is, it's an interesting point because yeah, we all kind of fall into that do as I say, not as I do on both ends of the spectrum. Right. But I think probably more important than, um, like are, how many hours are you spending? Because people talk about work-life balance and it's not about the number of hours you spend. It's about like, are you enjoying it? Because if you're staying at work because you have things you want to do and you're excited, that's very different than feeling guilted into staying or that, oh, well, you know, other people haven't left yet. So I have to stay. Like that shouldn't have anything to do with it. Like you've got your work done. Like you're not leaving people hanging and you don't have anything else to do. Or maybe you have something else that you do want to do that you've prioritized. Like that's okay. <laughs> like, it's okay if some weeks you're like, hey guys, I need to get out of here early because I have whatever. I have something else. I have other plans. I'm getting out of here for the weekend. I'm hanging out with friends. I'm, you know, hanging out with my nephew. Like, you name it. Like, that's fine. Um, but it's also fine to be like, yeah, no, I have this project I'm working on and it's really important to me. And so I'm staying late to get it done. And I'm giving, I'm missing out on this other thing because this is important to me right now. That's the balance that I see. It's not how many hours did you spend and did somebody else think it was enough? It's I'm doing the things that make me happy and that um, I'm, you know, I'm doing the work that keeps me fulfilled and passionate and engaged, but I'm also leaving enough that I have energy left over. So I think you could still be like that. You could be role modeling that. And I think it's okay that you're saying, hey, if you guys are done, get out of here. And you don't necessarily have to be leading the way out um, because some of those students are going to have things that are like, okay, I'm going to go read up on my cases because I thought this was interesting or I want to you know, reinforce what I learned today. And others are like, I'm going to the movies. And all of those are okay in their own way. Um, I think that's the hard part is we all think that we know what it looks like when somebody is doing the right, it's like, no, it, it, it looks different for all of us. And it looks different from day to day. Like, I don't- Yeah. No, I, I love that, Bobby. The the idea that um, work should be fulfilling, you know, mm -hmm. or maybe should, should isn't uh, maybe a good hopefully. word to use, but yeah, hopefully like fulfilling. Yeah, and you like it to be, and, and you know, you enjoy doing it, um, but then sometimes you also like, you know, getting out and doing other things. So. Yeah. You know, I think that honestly, this is one reason I really like academia is because, you know, if it's like a Wednesday at a four o'clock and I've done what I want to do and my wife and I are both free, it's like, okay, we're going to go happy hour somewhere, you know? Yeah. Um, but often Friday afternoon, um, there's not a lot going on. And pe so people aren't bothering me and I do like my data analysis kind of stat stuff yeah. a lot of the time and I enter my flow state and I'm just like happy yeah. as can be for yep. several hours. And I know you look like, at the clock and you're like, wow, right. I've been doing this for a long time and you don't feel bad about it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And, yeah. and that, that is okay. And, and the idea of work-life balance not being a numbers thing, uh, I think is, is fantastic. Yeah. It, yeah. I think balance is not the right word because it implies it should be like somehow equal, but it's like, no, right. I just, I've gotten enough fulfillment on this side, or I, I feel like I've accomplished what I wanted to on this side. And now I'm going to go and recharge on this side and I'm going to do the other things I need to do. And I think when you start to feel those obligations or stressed about what, that's when I think people start to be unhappy, right? Like I'm not do, doing, this is pulling me too far in this direction. And it can be in either direction, right? Like sometimes life is, is hard and, you know, you have something going on outside of work and it's consuming so much of your time and then you don't feel like you're doing the best you can at work. Like that also gets you out of whack. Um, I think, especially if you have a job like ours where you're like, this is not just like a punch the clock, get my paycheck. Like I, I feel like I'm contributing something. And so if things outside of work are 
pulling me away from that. I mean, it happens to all of us at various times, but that, that it works. We always blame it's like work, we're working too much. I'm like, sometimes it's the other way. Um, it's just about how am I able to re-energize myself and recharge so that I have something to give in all these different areas. And, and it's different for everyone. And at different times, it's different. Um, yeah, I think we just need to stop trying to pigeonhole and, and say, we know exactly what it looks like, or I can observe somebody else and know what their work-life balance is. I don't know that we can. So I just try to talk about it to the students like, hey, it's all right. On, on, at least on, on the rotation, on our emergency rotation, like you shouldn't feel bad when you wanna leave. Like, hey, get out of here, boom, done. Because tomorrow you might not get to. Tomorrow there might be more things to do, and so yeah, yeah exactly. it's always like, is this a, is Take this a the trick? Chance. <laughs> yeah, is this a test? Are we gonna are we gonna fail this? It's like no, leave for real. Yeah. Um, and and you might get to leave today, and somebody like ask them if they need help, and if they're like, no, I'm good, then you can get out of here. And then tomorrow, you know, try to help each other out, but don't feel like you have to stay because somebody else is either, because that'll all even out in the wash. Yep. Um, the, the problem is like, I, I understand the students feeling like, is this a trap? Because I think for some faculty, it is a trap. I, like I, I remember I, in my internship, I had a, a back dog and I was doing it with a surgeon and it was late and it was like, you know, my gazillionth back dog. And he was like, do you want to help me with this? And I was like, uh, and he was like, honestly choose. Like, I, I don't care if you're here or not. I'm like, if you are genuinely saying you don't care, I am going to go. But you know what? He did care. And that, not fair. Yeah. Not fair. But, yeah. But I, I think that maybe people don't know themselves or they, I don't know. It is frustrating that. Yeah. And no. And so I get that because students don't get a consistent message from everybody. Um, and so they are always wary when you're like, no, I'd like genuinely like this is this I, this is really not a test. You are not getting graded on your your overtime. Like that's not a thing. And uh, and it's yeah, it's really unfair because I want people to like advocate for themselves too. like, hey, I, <laughs> I don't I can't tell you how many times I've had to tell students like, hey, by the way, I'm not going to follow you around and make sure you had lunch. Like you, you're an adult and I just need you because I'm not going to keep track of your lunch. Like I'm going to keep track of my own. And if I start to feel hungry, I'm going to be like, all right, let me figure out if I can. Yep. Okay. I'm not saying take an hour and a half siesta in the middle of a busy ER schedule, like, you know, plan it out and try to be mindful. Maybe give somebody, Hey, I'm going to go grab lunch just so nobody's wondering where you are, but you don't need permission. Please don't like they ask like about going to the bathroom. Like this is not prison. <laughs> just go to the bathroom. And then I hear, well, like, well, when I was on this other rotation, like I was in the bathroom and I was like, where have you been? And I was like, wait, really? So sometimes I think they're making a bigger deal out of it than maybe it was. But other times I'm just like, well, maybe we are sending the signal. Like you, you need to be telling somebody when you're going to, to do like, really? Is this prison? Is that what we're trying to do? You know, yeah, you get your in, hall pass. In, inconsistent messaging. And yeah. I, I feel that pretty hard with the students as they transition from uh, the first couple of years of the curriculum to the clinical years of the curriculum, because I, I feel, and I haven't sat in the classes, so I, I can't say this for sure, but I feel that a lot of the stuff they get examined on, tested on is minutia and, and, and detail stuff and not like yeah. part of the bigger picture and, um, and maybe that's true for, for the clinical courses as well, but I, it really bums me out when I, hear the students talking about you know studying and memorizing this minutia stuff and I'm like oh my god I super don't care about that like I do not care if you could tell me the mac value of ISO this is because not it's a right here it's exactly you have access to all of human knowledge in your pocket you don't need that literally right there yeah well I'll be on clinics I'm like okay you're out in practice and you don't know the mechanism of action what are you going to do and they all kind of sit there blankly like I'm like, no, like literally, what are you going to do? And finally, somebody's like, I'll Google it. I'm like, you're going right, to Google it. That's what I'm going to do too. <laughs> like, that's what you're going to do. So get your phones out and Google it. Let's do it right now. Okay. Now, how do we use that? Like, how do we figure that out? Um, that's what I want you to do is how are you maximizing your resources? How are you doing it efficiently? What are you doing with that information? Like, why do you need to look up the mechanism of action or the Mac of it? Like, how are you using that? That's what's harder to just like find in a moment. Like the factoids, the, the numbers, the doses, the mechanisms, those are easy to Google. Like don't ever memorize an equation ever again. Like you don't need to um, because it's literally in the palm of your hand. And uh, our, our knowledge has expanded so much that you can't keep it all in your head and it's not realistic to try. So right. I'm like, I want you guys to be thinking it's the process that I care about. And I think that's probably where, I don't know about you, but that's where I get into the education stuff. Cause I'm like, okay, 
the thing I care about is like critical thinking skills, problem solving. It's so much harder to teach. It's so much harder to assess, but it's also all I care about. <laughs> like, because the rest of it is literally searchable in a matter of seconds. It's all, it's all in service to that. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, yes, there are certain things that, you know, it's going to make that process much faster if you have that baseline knowledge, but like, don't worry about having every tiny little thing memorized. And, um, and one of the things I do, you were talking about exams is, I don't like multiple choice exams. Oh, no. I mean, I like Terrible. grading them. I do right. like grading multiple choice exams, but I just, yeah. So I give, there are some multiple choice questions just to kind of speed things up for like just general recall things that I want them to know. Um, but very little, like most of the exams I use are um, short answer, short essay, some fill in the blank kind of things. And it's funny because like some of the students really like it. They're like, yes, we like this, um, but it's different for a lot of them. And they get very like, very itchy about it. <laughs> um, yeah. Because they're also like, when I, when I have my rubrics, it's not, this is the answer. It's if you said this, then these are the acceptable answers. And if you yep. said this, then these are the acceptable answers. And I think when they realize that they appreciate the opportunity to like share their thought process. Um, there's obviously challenges with that. It takes me a lot longer to grade um, and, you know, creating, but I think I've got a, a pretty good system where my rubrics are fairly, so I can be consistent and fair. I mean, somebody always gives me an answer that throws me for a loop. I'm like, oh, okay, what am I going to do with that? But, um, but generally speaking, I think I can be pretty darn fair and consistent with them. Um, and I just like it so much better. And I get like excited. I, I wasn't, it was a couple of weeks ago that I was grading the midterm for the third year ECC course. And I was like, oh my God, they're getting this. Like it was, it was just really gratifying for me rather than like, did they guess on that multiple choice question? Like, I, I don't know what they've learned, but they're telling me their thought process. And I'm like, yes, they are understanding this stuff. And it's very exciting. Yeah. I started doing basically essay only exams. I don't know, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and had the very identical experience with the students, like a handful of them, most of them are like, I don't understand why can't you just give us multiple choice questions, because that's what they've been trained to do yeah. for their whole academic career, right? And, um, you know, we're asking them to do something different, and it's a little bit unfair. And I think, you know, yeah. sometimes with, with our selection process for admissions for vet school, it's like we're choosing you based on how you've done this very traditional academic uh, role and then you come into vet school and maybe for the first year you know or two you're still in that traditional role and then we ask you to start thinking about things and they're like whoa 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 what is this yeah and thinking about the, things where there isn't even a single right answer oh man I uh <laughs> yeah. so I do script concordance questions which mm -hmm. is um like they, you give them an information uh, a, a case and then with this information that makes this diagnosis um, much less likely, less likely, neither more or less likely, more likely or much more likely. And they hate that because they don't want gray. They want to know it's this a diagnosis if you're given this information. I'm like, eh, sometimes we don't know. But that's going to be jarring for them whenever it happens and it's gonna happen. So do we want to wait yeah. until like they're in clinics to be like, hey, by the way, all those things <laughs> that you thought had right answers, throw that all out. Like it is jarring because like you said, you know, from kindergarten on, we're like, here's the one right answer. That's how things go. You know, obviously right. some, they, they understand some gray area, but they're like, yeah. what's the answer to the test? Like, what's the answer? And then if we spend the first two or three years in vet school with the same mindset, it's even more jarring when they get to clinic. So I'm trying to introduce them to that earlier and you are too. So yeah. yes, it's jarring, but it's going to happen now or it's going to happen later. <laughs> and I kind of <laughs> rather you start easing into it now. Um, and I do like conceptually, they get it. Like you can say that to them. Like I've yet to have a cat come in and say, Hey, do I have a, do I have B, do I have C? Like that's, you know, that's not how it happens. And so I don't care. Now we have here at Virginia Tech, uh, pass fail for everything, the entire curriculum. So that helps. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah. Oh my God. I love it. I love oh it. Oh my so gosh. Much. And that helps with this because we're basically saying it's not, did you get every little question, right? It's how, are, are you getting it? Like, do you know enough to be a vet? Like that's ultimately the question, Have, can you do this? And so I think I really, I'm a huge fan and obviously your reaction suggests you like that idea as well. It's awesome. I friggin' love it. That is great. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, championed that, doing that at Midwestern and, and left before made much progress. And uh, I would like to do that here. Um, I, I haven't been here very long, you know, yeah. just a few years, so I don't really know, but I have the impression that um we are very traditional in a lot of ways and that yeah. making that kind of sea change is going to be like that's going to be a tough sell yeah yeah 
It, it does. It's, it's, I wasn't here. So it, that had already happened before I got here. Cause I've only been at Virginia tech a couple of years too, but, um, it, it, and it's new. I think actually the, our class graduating this year might be the first one that went the whole curriculum as pass fail. Um, so it's still recent here. Um, but like, I love it. Like, I think it's so yeah, good. I mean, hundred percent. And like all, every med school is pass fail. Right. I'm like, I, this is, we have the model, you guys just copy and paste. I don't see the difference. I know. Right. Well, and I think it's more and more the competency-based education gets big. You're going to have to, because that's just not conducive to letter grades. It, it's, it's not. And so, um, yeah, so that's been like super exciting. And, but I think the other thing, and, and so I wanted to talk about this because this is the other thing you and I are, are part of, and you've taken a much bigger leadership role in this is the idea I would, I don't know if it's a movement or just a move um, in veterinary medicine to really start to prioritize and recognize specific training in education as an educator. Because like historically you become a veterinarian and you're a content expert and they're like, you're also a teacher expert. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> so, um, so maybe you can share a little bit about like what the, the, overarching philosophy goals are with what we should be doing with ed education and veterinary medicine. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that it makes me think of, so I've, I've done martial arts since I was uh, in, a teenager. I think uh, this is 30 years this year. And so in martial arts and most other um, sports disciplines, you learn to be a teacher by what we call the apprenticeship of observation where you see someone teach and then you carry on with their teaching strategies, um, which often are frankly not very good strategies. And so this is how you get martial arts instructors who are just bad. You know, they're just bad, bad teachers because they're just copying what their instructor did and doing the same without, often without reflecting on it any, any and certainly without having any formal training. And even formal training, I mean, like we did in Athens at our martial arts schools, we did a certificate, certificate, for instructor training or CIT or something like that. Yeah. It was just like a weekend workshop. You know, we brought people in and we're like, hey, like, let's talk about basic principles of teaching. And like, this is how, you know, people learn. And, and I feel like even doing that amount of some basic, you know, how to teach was helpful for, for those Absolutely. instructors. Absolutely. Yeah. Just spending any time, you know, with that metacognition, thinking about thinking, okay, right. like, how does this work? That's going yeah. to have an effect. Obviously a weekend isn't going to compare to years long, you know, of a PhD or a master's, but it's a start, it's better than zero. <laughs> Uh, better than zero exactly so um yeah so i think that we all realize that that we are uh subject matter experts in our specialty discipline and then we get to an academic role and we're asked to teach and it's again the apprenticeship of observation like what did you see your mentors do when you were a resident or what do you remember from vet school you know the the lectures doing and trying to to copy that and with with predictable results you know which is which is not necessarily bad but highly variable yeah you know, that, that some people um, take to it really well and they've picked up good, good uh, lessons and they try to apply that. But even those uh, faculty that, that are good and, and by good, I mean that like maybe get student, good student evaluations and, and that kind of thing, um, they may not have learning objectives, you know, in their well, slides. You know. and, yeah. and, and, and so it's like, okay, well, where are you writing your multiple choice questions? Like, what do the students need to focus on? You know, just what I consider simple things like that, even people who have been teaching 20 years who get good student evaluations aren't doing. Right. But the, there, there's, this is a funny thing too, is nobody has taught them as teachers to do that. Exactly, right. Like, exactly. I mean, you get to this, you're like, okay, I'm a veterinarian. I'm an expert. Maybe I've gone on and specialized. So I'm a specialist. Like I've done all the things and it's like, no, you actually have no idea how to do these things. And, and so I understand that idea of like, oh, no, like I've, I've reached the point in my career. I don't have to learn more stuff, right? It's like, well, yeah, I would say if you want to teach, no, you do, because there is a lot to that. And like, what are you teaching? What are your goals? What do you expect your students to be able to do at the end of this are very basic educational questions that I wasn't asking that long. Like that wasn't that long ago that I was not, I was like learning objective. I mean, I understood what those words meant. <laughs> I understand. Like I get, but I didn't realize like, oh, that's a specific thing. Um, there are rules essentially uh, associated with learning objectives. Like you, they're, oh, okay. And it makes, they all make sense. Like it's not, complicated stuff but you're like oh you just need to be thoughtful about it 
you, you need to think about it. The same right. thing. It, it's so funny. Like I had an epiphany years ago, but like the same things that I was like harping on my students about for like the medicine stuff. Like, I want you to just think about what you're doing. What's the reason behind what you're doing? And I was like, oh, I totally not doing that when I teach, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, very pot <laughs> yeah. kettle sort of situation oh my God. and like evidence-based medicine, we got evidence, but what's, what's the reason behind what you're doing? Except when you're teaching, just do whatever the heck happens and hope for the best. Like, <laughs> I wouldn't accept a student treating a patient in that regard. So why on earth am I accepting that strategy for my teaching? So I had this like epiphany and then I felt very guilty for a while. <laughs> like, oh, geez. Um, but that really like it just struck me. And that was it for me. I was like, OK, I got to do some work um, and because it does. It takes work to, to think about this. And um, but man, it's worth it. Right. Like the right. results, it's it's not that I've gotten everything right since then. There's been a lot of trial and error. And that was what that was my method for a long time was trial and error, like just thinking about what I'm doing. And then it's like, oh, no, there are people who study this and know it already. Like they can tell you why you're why that didn't work um, and maybe why this would work better. And uh, so, I mean, really, that's the kind of the point, though. Right. We need to we need veterinary educators who are doing the work to be better educators. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so my question for you is like, what would be your vision of how veterinary education would look say in like 15, 20 years, 50 years? Like, like what, what would that look like in terms of who is doing the educating? What does it look like? How is that sorted out? Like what are, like, what would you design? Um, probably unpopular opinion. So I guess hopefully I'm never gonna run for veterinary political office. Um, <laughs> you know, the vast majority, what do our graduates do, right? They go into general practice, primarily small animal. Now, I think that we should be still training vets to be researchers and, you know, one health, uh, public health people and, and all of that. But at the end of the day, at least right now, most of our graduates are going into general practice. So my personal belief is that that's what we should be preparing them for. Yeah. And you know what tertiary care hospitals are good at? Training specialists not training general practitioners. No student in the world needs to know how to do a PDA surgery when they graduate vet school. Um, and, and I would argue those are not particularly great teaching cases for them, like uh, from anesthesia perspective, right? It's like, okay, we're going to talk about anesthesia for PDA. Are you ever going to do this? No. You know, so, so I need to look at, okay, what are basic principles of anesthesia that I can use this case for to teach you? Yeah. But would I rather have you do a gazillion spay neuters and dentals? Yes. Yeah. Um, so that, that's what I, if I, if I was in charge, I would say like, okay, we obviously need tertiary care hospitals. Right. right. Um, and we need to train residents and specialists, but I think that we need to do a different job training uh, vet students. And I think that we probably got here because in human medicine, everyone does do a residency, right? Uh, everyone does have, have a specialty. And so I guess if we went that direction with veterinary medicine, then, then it would be fine to have in the tertiary care hospitals. But until or unless that happens, which I don't think it will, um, I think that we, we should have our tertiary care hospitals and then we need to have our primary care hospitals. You yeah. know, and, and we need to, the students need to spend most of their time in primary care. Yeah. And who would be doing the teaching and training? Um, I think that it would be general, general practice uh, people or, um, you know, uh, yeah, general practitioners. Like you don't really, let me think about this. I don't think that you really need an anesthesiologist to teach you anesthesia except insofar as GPs have a lot of misconceptions about anesthesia. So I would be a little bit anxious about just grabbing a GP sure. and throwing him into ET anesthesia, because I think that some of the information they give would be like actually wrong. Um, but uh, on the clinic floor, uh, same kind of thing. Like, I don't think that you really need an anesthesiologist to be teaching you basic principles of anesthesia. No, but you might need an anesthesiologist to like review the material and like ensure, you know, quality assurance kind of yes, stuff. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right, yeah. right, right. Yes. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. which is anybody, like anybody who becomes a veterinarian gets to teach the next generation or would you have, would you envision more like requirements or credentials to teach? Yeah. So, so it would ideally be people who 
who have been in practice for for several years, um, maybe you know have an internship or, or that sort of equivalence or ABVP um, boards to indicate that they have achieved some level of expertise that is acknowledged yeah. in terms of of being general practice knowledgeable. Um, and then, yeah, ideally having some kind of certification to teach. Because look, here's the thing: our K through 12 teachers. You can't teach unless you have a certificate. I have a friend of mine who has a doctorate in musical arts and he is teaching high school music and he needs a teaching certificate to do that. And it's this pretty grueling two-year process like every Saturday and all this nonsense. Whereas if he taught at a community college or a major university, he would need none of that. Yep. Which is bonkers. Right? I know. I mean, I think it's good that, you know, to teach in high school that you have to have those certifications. I mean, I don't know specifics and maybe they're too much or not enough. I don't know. But like the fact that we're saying, hey, in order to teach other people, we're going to need you to demonstrate that you can do it effectively. Um, Now, again, we can have an argument about whether or not that's what those certificates provide. That's that's another. But at least conceptually, we're saying not just anybody can walk in off the street and teach our children. Um, but I guess because you're an adult, they just go, whatever, anybody can come on off the street. Um, if they have whatever random qualifications we've decided are important for this, again, content expertise is important. I'm not saying it's not, but maybe that's not the whole scoop. Cause I think everybody has experienced learning under somebody who is like unequivocally an expert in what they do, but isn't good at teaching it. Um, and is it good at facilitating other people learning it and, um, and then the opposite is true. Like we've, we, like we've all experienced like people who just teach in a way that you're like, yeah, we get this. This makes sense. Like, like I like this. Um, and it's not the same person for all of us. Like one person you might work under and be like, this person's amazing. And I might be like, what? I didn't understand anything they said. Like, you know, it, it's not always a one-to-one, but, uh, but I do think there is, I would argue in veterinary medicine, not enough value currently placed on those additional that additional training in how to teach um and that's what i would love to see you know over time again it might take 50 years but um i would like to see that uh, that at a minimum you've done some some training like even if it's just every school has their own like you know as you're arriving like okay before you teach a class like you have to go through all these things or check off these boxes to make sure you know what a learning objective is like you know that that you understand the concepts uh you know behind adult learning and how it's different from you know um adolescent learning those kinds of things like there's there's some basic things i don't know exactly that we would all come on to to, to agree on what those things are but like something (laughs) give me something um i I I also think that that the, the, the subject matter experts teaching their discipline is maybe not the best thing yes. only because oh, I've yeah. seen I've seen plenty of like anesthesiologists teaching anesthesia I'm like oh like they don't need to know this you guys let's exactly. move on yeah again I think I think the quality assurance is good but I can remember from vet school being taught nephrology by a cardiologist and being like yeah this is good stuff Ooh, being taught cardiology by a cardiologist and right. I was like Eisenmiger syndrome, syndrome. why do I even know what that is? I shouldn't even know what that is, honestly. And so um, I do think we're not always, I mean, I fall into that trap too. Like I, there's things that I nerd out about and I'm like, ah, everybody's eyes are glazed over and I start talking coagulation stuff. And I'm like, I don't care because this is awesome. You know, and it's like, no, somebody needs to stop me and be like, they don't actually need to know that. Um, yeah, and- you know, what's interesting to me is when I get trapped in that is when the students ask those esoteric questions, yes. but then I try to phrase it as like, all right, you guys, this is not something you need to know. I know the answer. And so I'm going to give it to you because you asked, but do not, do not, this is not walk around knowledge for a GP. No. Yeah. It, it, but it's hard too. Cause you're also like, but this is the stuff I get excited about. And so somebody asks the question, you're like, yes, let me, yeah. Wax poetic about this for the next 20 minutes. Um, but it is, it is hard because you are excited about it, but also you, you need those checks and balances. Like that would be almost, I almost feel like could they be team taught? Like you have the content expert and then you have the education expert and they're constantly like checking That's in with each other. Yeah. Um, you know, where, cause that, then they don't even have to be a veterinarian, right? Um, but you'd always have somebody asking like, is this genuinely what like they need to be able to know? Cause that, you know, that, that seems a little, little, you know, a little out of reach for the average person. Um, and then maybe you have some like veterinarians that are just general, like checking in on the content expertise part. Like, 
no, we're, we're not, we're not going to do that. I mean, when I, I took over um, the ECC course when I was at Florida years ago, and I, I changed a lot. Um, we had lectures on dialysis. We had lectures on mechanical ventilation. And I was just like, oh my gosh, no. That should be maybe a 30 seconds of a slide in a, in a <laughs> right. maybe, maybe. Yeah. Like I could give you that, but like a whole hour long lecture. I mean, and it was somebody who loved doing it. It was super excited about it. It was probably a really cool lecture. I didn't attend it, but, um, you know, but no, <laughs> like this is just not a, I was like, maybe we could have one on block cats. Maybe we didn't have that before. Maybe a GDV talk, maybe, you know, uh, things are going to see and do things are going to see. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, but it's, it, you need that outside perspective because you get caught up in, in your own stuff. And, um, and again, I don't think people are, it's not like, oh, they weren't making an effort to do a good job. It's just, right. you, um, and then the so, problem, yeah. the problem there becomes faculty autonomy, you know, that, um, I can imagine sitting sitting down because I I did this with the pharmacology faculty when I was at Midwestern and I sat down like oh can we look over like the anesthesia drugs that you're teaching them and and they they did and you know there was this like sense of defensiveness and so it was it was hard to like navigate that social dynamic right yeah. that I was like okay so like I see you guys are, are talking about halothane and like that's interesting but like on a practical <laughs> level you know that's not really something the students need to, to know about and thiopental and, mm -hmm. you know um but it, I feel like if we all entered into it as the spirit of we need to train students to be competent GPs that that would facilitate that, those conversations but even getting that buy-in like I think that that oh. is probably not a statement that people would agree with no, and and I think I think where that one comes out, I've thought about this a lot. Is um, I think what happens is people start to worry that they are becoming obsolete. Like oh, interesting. Like I think it's a fear. Like if if you don't let me talk about these things, like I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to talk about alfaxalone because that's not what I like. It was good enough for me. It's good enough for them. And it's this defensiveness because I, I don't know. It's this loss. I feel like these people almost like grieve. You know, we can't teach embryology anymore. And so the embryologists are like, this is ridiculous. And, and everybody else is like, nothing has changed in how we practice medicine <laughs> when we took away embryology. Um, and it's hard because like I like I, I'm like, I really want to talk about this stuff. And I if somebody said, no, we don't think that's important, I'd be like, what what? But it's so important. Of course, this is important. I wouldn't talk about anything that wasn't terribly important. I mean, I would, I do all the time, but um, but I, I can certainly empathize with that. Whew, you know, and over 20, 30 years of a career, the, the profession changes a lot. Um, and you almost have to go through like a grieving process to be like, all right, we, we can't talk about halothane anymore because like, yeah. you even or, use it. Yeah. Or, I, or ideally embrace it. Like we've, I've, I've been spending a lot more mental time anyways, thinking about talking to the students about communicating with the clients about anesthesia risk and what happens if they have a problem with anesthesia, you know, worst case yeah. scenario of fatality. I'm like, I think this is time much better spent than coming up with an anesthetic protocol, because frankly, you can give the same protocol to lots of different patients, they'll be fine. Um, but if you know how to communicate with a client about it, I think that's going to be a much more effective use of your mental brains. I love that you say that. I do the same thing when I talk about CPR. We talk so much more about the client communication on CPR, when you should even be doing CPR, should that's you fantastic. do it, should you not, all of that. Yeah. It's like, once they've died, like, honestly, you should spend so much more energy into preventing them from dying. Once they've right. died, right. like, your odds yep. have just yeah. dramatically exactly. decreased, right? Just and so I really life. want you to think about all these other things. How are you going to prevent it? How are you going to have the conversation with the owners? Are you even offering it in every situation? Like, do you understand that you aren't required to do it? Like if you, I think you ethically should be honest with people, but if you say, we're not going to do this, you can, you can do that legally. You're allowed. And students are like, wait, what? You know, they, they don't even think yeah. they have any say in the situation. So we, I spend so much more time talking about the communication around CPR than it ever, than I ever do about doing chest. I mean, we, we talk about chest compressions when we talk about that, but like beyond that, I'm like, you just need to know how to talk about this. Yep. No, that's, yeah. that's, that's absolutely, yeah. I, I spend 80% of my CPR yeah. talk time talking to them about it. And, yeah. and, but part of the problem is that we're also not modeling good behaviors where we're like, it's like, oh, we have this pet, it arrests, we start doing compressions, then we call the client and they say, stop. I'm like, why did we even start like this? That was a failed communication when that patient came into the hospital. I was, um, I was talking with, 
um, some folks today. So a thing that I've introduced here that people are starting to get used to is um, a code status that is doctor's discretion. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, I mean, they no, should all be. They should all be. I mean, I, you got yeah. you got a 13-year-old golden with end-stage lymphoma that's swirling the drain and has a, had a gazillion transfusions. Like, I don't care if you want me to resuscitate that dog. I'll be like, compress, compress, it failed. Yeah. But I, I like to, but I tell the students, like, this was a conversation I had with the client, right? So when they come in on ER, for me, I don't necessarily know the whole situation right now. So this, it also could change. And so I don't know what I'm going to recommend right now. And I don't know if it's going to be the same that I'll recommend in three hours when we get all the test results back. So the conversation I have with the client is, so here's here's the situation in the event that, and I, I, I teach students, like, don't say arrests, because they don't know what that means. Say died, like, use, use don't use euphemisms, because they don't, they know what died means. They do. Um, but right. when they say if you're if you're if your pet suffers cardiopulmonary arrest and people are like okay do you want us to do yeah. CPR and they go yes because they don't course, know what that means. they don't know and also they think it's going to work because they've watched house mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah and so yeah I have that conversation with them too and um, but then I'm like I say or what you can tell them is. I don't know enough about your pet right now, but what I can say as we gather information, if your pet does happen to die under our care, you know, there are certain circumstances where I would, I might feel that we have a reasonable chance of getting him back to a good quality of life, in which case I would recommend we do CPR. But if in my estimation, we don't have a good chance of getting him back to a reasonable quality of life, then I would not do CPR. Does that sound like in line with what you would want? And they go, yeah, that's what we want. And so that's fantastic. Other people are starting to offer that too. So now we have, so in our, in our hospital, we have a zero, one, and two. So zero is a DNR, one is closed chest and two is open chest. And I'm like, that's not a client decision. No, um, yeah. it's, it, it's arbitrary. And you're going to spend the time to educate the client about the distinction amongst those. Yeah. Right. But now if it's one that I say, Hey, what I know about your pet is if we, if it dies, we need to do open chest. I'm going to have that conversation. Like, and if it's no, then I'm probably going to say, then we're not going to do it. But I have that conversation with them and it's amazing how often the clients are like, yeah, that, that makes sense. And so I'm starting to see it now in cases that I'm not involved in. I'm starting to see the doctor's discretion, which it makes me so happy. Uh, yeah, but, but it is, it's so important that we have these conversations. This is the stuff that they need to be ready for this on is the what first they need day to know. after graduation. Yeah. 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 Cause they can do CE cause they're going to have to, right. If you're right. going to do CPR, you're going to yep. have to keep practicing. You're not going to be done at the at, at vet school, but like, if nobody ever talks to you about this stuff, you're going to go out there and just keep perpetuating the same thing. All right, we'll wait until it dies and then we'll call you and ask right. you if you want yes. us to keep going. Yes. Oh God, that kills me. Me too. Me yeah. Too. Anyhow. The, um, the other thing about uh, veterinary education in the next 50 years that, that this struck me when the pandemic hit um, is I was teaching uh, the cardiology course because we didn't have a cardiologist at the time. And I was like, this is dumb. Yeah. Why are 30 different schools, 30 plus different schools teaching the same thing right now? Couldn't, couldn't we all do this like in a coordinated fashion? Maybe like, maybe there's a, a fall sem uh, semester, a spring semester cardiology, depending on like where the curriculum aligns. Yeah. And that way, every single school wouldn't need to employ at least one, usually more cardiologist. We could just have that content delivered virtually we would have to have like a bunch of TA type people or, you know, sure. like yeah. it, people that could interact with the students on an individual level and do assessments. Well, that could be like your GP slash education experts too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but, but why, why are all the schools having all these specialists to teach all these classes independently? This is ridiculous. Yeah. yeah it's not a very good use of our resources, is it? No. Especially since we don't have enough of all of these people. Right. You'd free yes. up a lot of people to see more cases and to, to, yeah you know, train more interns and residents if that's what we decide we need. Yes. Yeah, I love that. I, I think one thing that um, that the pandemic has done is it has opened up people's ideas to those types of things. So I think um, we as a community would be more receptive to those ideas now than, they than we would have been three years ago. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah. Because we've definitely seen a lot of that, like, okay, guys, we're all struggling. What are you guys doing? There was a lot of sharing of resources over the past couple of years. A lot more um, people are a lot more open to the idea of, virtual learning um, supplemented by you know like in-person coaching and feedback i think would be a really really cool model and i like the idea of you know curating like a curriculum that we say we all agree with and endorse and not that it's 
this is the one right way because that gets back to what we were talking about before like here's the nuance here's the situations where there's disagreement here's where we don't all and we just teach the right. students that from the get-go yeah. that it's not um because that's the other danger i think at a school is you have if i'm the only criticalist here and i'm teaching critical care then i'm teaching and implying even if i'm not stating explicitly that this is the one right way and then oh, they leave and they're like yeah. You know, I, like, so I try to, I try to make a very big point. Like, this is one thing, you know, like, this is just one way of looking at that. I, I don't even want you guys. In fact, I don't want you guys to leave here and do things the same way I've done. Then I haven't done my job. I want you to right. go out there and be better. I want yeah. you to go out there and challenge the norms and do things better than I'm doing it. That's Although incredible. the the struggle that I've seen with that is like, if the students have different faculty on the rotation, then like, then they get confused, right? Because yep. they're like, okay, Hoff's telling me this thing. They're telling me this other thing, like what, like where do they, yeah. they don't have like the residents. That's fantastic. Yeah. The residents need yeah. that. But I worry about the students getting too many messages and it's they're not true. quite sure. I wonder how much of that. And, and I don't know the answer to this because that is absolutely the other end of that spectrum, right? Is that the more variety they are told, the more they're like, we, we just, we shut down. They, 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 the smoke comes out of the ears and they're like, we got nothing. But if we started earlier in the curriculum, implying, like not implying, explicitly telling them there are multiple ways to do this. There are multiple correct answers to this question because I think that's where the disconnect often happens. Yeah, they do there's not, one right they answer, do there's like one that. right answer. And yes. then we get to clinics and there's multiple <laughs> right answers and that's hard. But if we started prepping them earlier, would that potentially um, alleviate some of that, you know, mental distress where they're just like, I just need to just tell me what the right answer is. And it's like, I can't because it doesn't exist as far as we know. Right, um, yeah. I don't know. So I guess we'll check back in in like 50 years and see how things are going. <laughs> um, but uh, this, this was really fun. It was really fun. I feel like we could go on for hours and yeah. talk about this stuff. And so you'll have to come back and we'll have to uh, continue the conversation and, um, and, and see what other things that we can, uh, I just like blowing up systems. Like that's my right. thing. Yes. Oh, like me too. Like, yes. You know what? Let's just start from scratch. Right. Um, yeah, I love, 100%. I love, I hate the idea of that can't work because I'm like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Let's, let's open up it. Like, how, how could we make that work? That's my favorite. Um, so yeah, I, I like the idea of just throwing out the current model, starting from scratch, making it make sense and everything's yep. on the table. Um, so yeah. I love your, your rat. See, I don't even feel, feel like your ideas are all that radical. Um, <laughs> I, I know I do the same thing. I'm like, what if we did this? And people are like, what? It's like, it doesn't feel that radical. Yeah, um, it's, but, when I, when I learned the word iconoclast, I was like, that's what I am. <laughs> Yes, exactly. It's perfect. I love it. Uh, very good. Well, thank you again for joining me and uh, thanks for having me on your podcast too. So we'll oh, yeah, definitely do some cross promotion. And yeah. um, and so I'll probably put the links to the podcast you and I did for your blog um, on, on our channel and uh, you know, we'll see. But anyway, yeah. thank you so much, Eric, for coming and talking. Fantastic. And um, yeah, well, you'll definitely have to come back. <laughs> Great. Thank you. All right.